Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to an extra rugged edition of Thrush and Treasure, the Torture Chamber musical comedy podcast where Alphaba disguises herself as a cactus so nobody will throw water on her. And speaking of disguises, this guy says, I'm Aaron, and I says, I'm joined as usual by the all-singing, all-dancing, international man of mystery, because he's Matt the Quizmaster. How's it going? Hey, how's it going? I'm coming to you from Mackay, Queensland today. Yep. It's always a mystery where I'm going to be. Yeah, awesome. Oh, I love that. I love a guessing game. You should just drop me <laughs> hints every now and then. Anyways, guess what? What? We have another legendary Aussie diva in the lab today, and after already meeting a sticky fate from one Red Queen, we hope this time he's better prepared for our Resident Evil, because this cool captain has cruised across cameras and curtains in a career that can only be called criminally crazy, thus causing the crownies to catch this kid in court for incarceration with the tough nuts and bad girls over a bit of daylight robbery and everything in between. But between the pages lies a daringly dashing dude whose career reads more like a Joan Collins novel as the dream lover Noddy goes to Toyland to gift the newlyweds Mac and Mabel with an aspects of love, but on the way meets Dr. Zhivago, his former lover when they were neighbours, with a skip of his heartbeat, he whispers, kiss me Kate, as the grand doc lets down her long beautiful hair, it causes the fantastics to rise like a phoenix, mile high till it makes the guys and dolls shout, mamma mia, dear world, oh what a night, leaving this dream team scarlet faced, hip bones sticking out, they sure ate the play. But what a shock and shame, they lay miserable, waiting for enough sweet charity donations so that RFDS can transport them, dead or alive, to casualty. A place to call home while they recover with help from today's chosen nursicle. So like the man from Snowy River, let's round up this West Side story as we whip out the chess pieces and crack a huge dream-coated g'day to our Technicolor pal Joey from the South Pacific, who will prove he's the Wizard of Oz by bringing an afterlife to the apocalypse caused by those assassins Barnum Jekyll and Hyde Patrick. Evil awakens the Phantom of the Opera, but we've already awakened the Resident Evil, so before I repeat a pun, please help me welcome to the torture chamber this absolutely astonishing artiste this all-round awesome Aussie and British co-production before he hears the drums Fernando and cruises off to Greece please drum up a round of applause for the mayor of rock and roll city the one and only Mr Martin Cruz yay welcome to the torture chamber how's it going outstanding absolutely amazing thank you so much you're lucky I didn't get that mixed up well, yeah well congratulations getting through that in, in obviously more than one breath but I have been waiting with bated breath to hear that that was and it wasn't it didn't disappoint thank you so much yeah awesome i did warn you i did warn you yes. <laughs> you think you know someone and then you hear that, that yes. introduction yeah. you're like, oh i didn't know that oh, oh yeah i think you know yourself what a shock and shame huh hmm, oh yeah that was a cracker but anyway so i couldn't have done that without you having done that which all those titles work so well for an erotic novel i have to admit <laughs> yes that's not in my head. That was all there. I, I looked at it. I'm like, holy crap. And I could have gone further with it and kinkier with it, but I didn't. You're right. If I ever decided on a career change. <laughs> well, that's it. 
So, uh, but anyway, so I'm absolutely wrapped for you joining us uh, because, well, a lot of fanboys out there, probably a lot of metalheads have seen the original Resident Evil movie, which is, you know, still today. It, it sparked off this huge franchise that just went on and on and on. I know. And now has been rebooted five minutes later. Yeah. Uh, but the first and last time I saw you was in Hair at Hamer Hall. Ah, wow. And you're about this big. Are you right? Yes, right. Yeah, you are up in the grand scene. I hope you're referring to his height because you were... Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, totally. Because I said to myself, I'm going, no, I'm not, we won't bring up that scene because that's just an awkward thing. And then I'm like thinking about where we were sitting and how the whole cast was about an inch high because it's Hamer yes. Hall. Yeah, you were right at the back, obviously. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to start off on the wrong foot like that. Thank you for calling <laughs> me out on that. Well, Matt. that's all right because I, I was the only one who didn't take my clothes off. So, well, that's. Fine. Yeah, you were Claude. That's right, yeah. Yes, and you didn't do the tour. Now, I saw the tour as well. Mm-hmm. That was with Kane Alexander. Yes, that's right. Yes, and I, I know Claude is, is the one who, who doesn't. So that sort of thought, well, there's no point in bringing it up anyways. But I will say that um, in rehearsal, when, when the time came for everyone to nude up for the first time, I decided to join in because you know as, as part of the tribe solidarity i don't know if you remember we yeah we had an inner tribe and an outer tribe because we had about 150 um people in the tribe but they were the outer tribe was made up of vca students. yeah yeah dance school yeah and students thing. and uh so the inner tribe who was sort of the principal cast uh they left us all alone on stage at Hamer Hall and we all stripped off and we all went running naked through the auditorium which was <laughs> quite an incredible experience and uh you know one for the memory banks because um you know you're in this was it like a 2000 seat auditorium stark pollock naked running around and screaming and giggling yes that's going on my bucket list now. Thank you very much. Right. There you go. Yeah. Well, make sure you choose your timing because otherwise you'll get arrested. Exactly. Well, yeah. So if anyone's listening that works at the Arts Centre in Melbourne at Hamer Hall, you can find our email online. Hit me up and and no cameras. Just let me do it for fun. <laughs> Anyways, uh, you know what I actually thought, though, at the time, it should have been done across the road in the gardens. And that would have just been spectacular to have done hair in the actual gardens. Yes. The way they'd done it was all the students were sort of up in the aisles and stuff like that, just all waving around ribbons every now and then. It was a production company show. Yes. And uh, normally they were in the State Theatre. I can't remember why they were in Hamer Hall this time. Uh, as you said, it toured the next year because it sold out immediately. We only did six performances or something, but uh, it completely sold out. So they decided to uh, mount it as their first full proper show uh, and toured it. I think it did Melbourne and Sydney. In my punk day. So I think it was in that respect, it should have, it was a little bit, even just at Sydney Meyer, yeah, Meyer Music Bowl. Yeah. It just would have had that real hippie outdoor feeling. They could have had yeah. a real bonfire or something like that going to add to the atmosphere. I don't know. My, and I've seen a few productions of Hair and what they've done with it. And it's all pretty much been the same thing. You've got the band on stage, you've got a, an American flag backdrop and you've got the peace sign. I'm sort of a little bit fatigued. Right. But yes, anyways, we're going to move on. Speaking of rock, we'll move on to the medal now firstly what would be in your ultimate over-the-top rock star rider if you could put anything on there make it outrageous yeah maybe 
a hundred virgins. I don't know, serving bonbons like naked. I don't know. <laughs> what sort of bonbons? Come on, get specific here. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of uh, some of the things that they've that have been in riders, and they've absolutely blown my mind. But but of course, you know, back in the day, they used to just make up things because they knew that they could get them. Well, that's what we want. We want we want craziness. Yeah, private jet, maybe. Yes, that's what we are talking about. Yes, we like this. Yes, and are the are the virgins going to arrive on the private jet with you or uh yeah 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 they should be the hostesses and the the flight crew in fact i shouldn't be sexist we have some male virgins as well excellent excellent all inclusive yes, i was gonna finish round it off with saying and in this pc times they will be male female and non-binary virgins of course they're non-binary absolutely yes as long as they identify as virgins because you know that's right yes self-identify as virgins <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I have to I have to stop us here. I saw something the other day that somebody somebody wrote that this person self identifies as poor. What? Anybody? Anyone can self identify as poor? Either you are or you're not. There's no fucking self identifying about it. Sorry, but that just that just blew my mind. I'm like, what self identify? Okay, either they are struggling or they're not. No, absolutely. There's yeah. no looking in the mirror going, I'm I identify as poor. You would know it, man. You'd know it. You'd see it in your face because your face would be so depressed and sunken every day. Anyways, I'm talking about myself there. <laughs> Let's move on very, very, very quickly. <laughs> Have you had any experience with metal, heavy metal, glam metal, thrash metal? Not a whole heap. The The closest I sort of got was a, I was into Kiss for a little bit. Yep. Ah. Well, and of course, Led Zeppelin. Well, yeah, of course, without saying. Yeah, that's a given. Not that they're heavy metal, but I was a huge Cold Chisel fan through my teens. But I never listened to Black Sabbath or anything like that. But it was interesting when I listened to the album, how it reminded me of bands like Jethro Tull. Obviously different instruments, but some of the musical structure, some of it's relatively complex. Though, And the way that it would shift from sort of one tune all of a sudden break into something completely different but uh yeah i never really got into the the full-on heavy metal scene um anyways well i've reviewed the album this week because we did black sabbath i thought we had done black sabbath before now i know we've definitely done ozzy osbourne his solo work but apparently we had never done Black Sabbath in our 87-something episodes. Like, I'm such a musical theatre guy. I was like, what? Ozzy Osbourne's in Black Sabbath? Oh, interesting. Piece of trivia for, you know, those of you out there who are as clueless as me. I've talked about it when we did Ozzy Osbourne. The only Ozzy Osbourne song I knew was the theme song of the Osbournes reality show, which they turned into a jazz song. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I couldn't tell you any time I had heard any of these. Ozzy Osbourne's voice I could never have told you if I'd heard that in a movie which apparently I had heard it in a movie it was news to me anyway so before we discuss it I'm going to quickly run through this review upon deciding to cover Black Sabbath it was a totally random pick and really only went with this album because of the brilliant artwork and sabotage because I'm self-destructive so the words spoke to me but would the album or would it leave a hole in this guy so I loaded up the Spotify jukebox for track one, Hole in the Sky. Oh wait, I just did that one. So I bopped my head along and bopped the skip button to find out I shouldn't have. Don't start, too late, I already did. But this 49 second instrumental should be the overture with that title. 
But as the Gregor guitar kicks in on Symptom of the Universe, which I can already tell you is social media, here we have an angry six and a half hour song that never outstays its welcome by delivering a track that somehow slows down to a bongo driven groove that fits and works. All it needs is a Caucasian 60 year old in a Hawaiian shirt. Megalomania really spoke to me, but the week long runtime did not. Nine minutes? What is it with megalomaniacs talking too much? I'm asking for a friend. I'm kidding. Nobody believes I have friends. But I do believe this song takes us on another journey, much like listening to me. Sorry, megalomaniacs talk for nine minutes. <laughs> I didn't notice until this point that it's a long album with only eight tracks, with much of the album's individual tracks going through all sorts of motions whilst never clashing with each other. It feels angry, yes, often indecisive, and yet, that's the thrill of it all. Super Tsar started, and again, I felt seen, but not heard with this second jam track, so I'll write my own lyrics. Am I going insane? Yes, because I kind of dug this album. It's rock and roll, bit thrashy, bit proto-punk, vocals could use some death, but otherwise, this mole gives a four stars. Kind of really dug this. This was odd. It was an obscure album. It went so many places within each track. And then you'd have like a nine minute track and a 49 second track and an eight minute track and a three minute track. But listening to it on repeat, it never felt like that. Yes, right. Which was odd because... I torture myself with these albums. I listen to them on repeat over and over and over again for hours and days and days on end. So I think on the vinyl, there's four tracks on each side. So, I mean, that's quite interesting as well. You see, we'd have to flip it halfway through. Yeah. And would they be even? Not really sure. Lots of space, you know, on the vinyl in the middle, there would be lots of space either on the outside or the inside. I wondered when it started because I had no pre-knowledge of it at all. And I wondered whether it was going to follow some kind of theme or, concept and I I fairly quickly decided that it wasn't but then as I say that's sort of what reminded me of you know Jethro Tull of the these this exploration of different styles of music yeah. different rhythms and I, I was also thinking if you if you swapped out the instruments you know if you if you didn't have grunge guitar if you put in flute or you know more of the the um the instruments that Jethro Tull favored then it was very kind of orchestral, mm, mm. you know, in its sort of scope. It was. And a lot of these albums that we've done, especially from that period, do kind of read like concept albums, whether mm. intentional, whether it's just the influence of bands like Pink Floyd and The Who and Pink Floyd and The Who. I know those two. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as I, I kind of really dug this. It was picked at random. I didn't realize that there was a whole story behind it because it's angry deliberately. Right. There's lots of good stories behind it. Yeah. Well, according to Wikipedia, so this could all be wrong and speculative and we are only relaying what the monkeys with keyboards wrote. So do not sue us, please. There was lawyers in the studio at the time, and so they were in the middle of recording and signing all this stuff, you know, arguments and stuff with the, the record company. So it sort of it reflected in the music, and I love that. Mm. That's why I like Kelly Clarkson's angrier music. There I'm bringing up Kelly Clarkson again. I can hear the audience out there groaning, but I don't care. Her angry music I love. Because yeah. her passion's in there. You can feel that emotion coming through. A lot of people say, well, you know, again, like from what I've read on the internet, a lot of people sort of look to this album as sort of like a defining thrash metal album because of the emotion that's on it, because of the anger. Because, of course, it's called Sabotage. 
yeah, well, this is what I've read on the internet, so it may or may not be true. But of course, the title sabotage was because they were in this fight with their manager. And so they felt, you know, that they were being sabotaged into making an album. And so um, Ozzy Osbourne said that he was writing all these angry lyrics. And, you know, obviously that relationship was very much affecting the content of the album. Right. I think artistically to its benefit, honestly. Yeah. Mm. That's not to say record executives out there go push it around your artists for crying out loud. And also even in the photo shoot, and on the cover, like I'm, I did comment on the quote unquote brilliant cover art that was a bit of shade I was throwing because it's called the worst rock album cover of all time. They were told <laughs> to come along to a test shoot. They didn't know it was going to be the actual photo shoot. The designers didn't have their costumes, which are supposed to all be in black. One of them's in his wife's red stockings, but there's all sorts of stories we could unpack there that I really do want to know just for the juicy goss. And they found it at the time. This is the photo shoot. So they were promised that we're going to fix it up. It's going to look great. And it's considered the worst album cover. But when you think about it, it's sort of reflective then of the anger and what they were going through behind the scenes to make this album because they got screwed over in that as well. Yeah. And it shows. So you can judge a book by its cover. Did they part ways with their manager after this or? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that they were actually possibly even broken up with the manager at that point, which is why there were lawyers around uh, during, the, during the thing to okay. sort of like, you know, transition their way out of it. But I'm, I, I'm not exactly sure. We'll have to do some research on that one. Yeah. Mm. The listeners at home, go to your laptops after this episode and look for yourselves. Let us know on the Twitter. As, as we say, it, it, it shows in this, but the, even those softer moments or where it slows down didn't stick out like I thought they did on Ziggy Stardust. Mm. Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't have a jarring quality to it. And I didn't find this did either. There was no jarring quality. It was it worked. It worked really, really mm. well. So, yeah. Now, what would you give it out of five? Well, qualifying my mark with uh, my confession that I am not a heavy metal aficionado, so it's an uneducated mark. I'd sort of play it safe and give it a three. I did enjoy listening to it. I was impressed with some of the musicality. I, I sort of agree with all of the things that you're saying about it, but then at the same time, I didn't sort of come away going, wow, I'm going to listen to more of that. I sort of I, I had, had a healthy respect for what they achieved, but not necessarily my cup of tea. So no standout tunes no bangers for you on this one it was more as i said once i sort of got about three four tracks in i it it was on sort of it took me on such a a retrospective journey right from the beginning thought about kiss and i thought about jethro tal and i thought about in fact in fact i thought about hair funnily enough ah there you go yeah some of the musical motifs i thought yeah i can kind of almost see you know where similar time period really i think isn't it what what year was um sabotage 75 i think 75 that's right yeah yeah in, in around that sort of early 70s era and so it's it's not that it sort of washed over me and had no effect i was you know i was sort of suddenly awash with all of these kind of memories and and fond memories of other stuff that I'd listened to and also made me think that if I'd come across this when I was a teenager, then it might be a very different story. It may, I might have pursued it a bit more in depth. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't, and I don't know why I, it, it never came up for me, but uh, it didn't. Because you had 
good influences in your life, not those giving you devil music. <laughs> That's why. If you were a troubled teen, Martin, you would have just been sitting in your room, you know, all the lights down, listening to this on repeat, on repeat, yes. flipping that record over, flipping that record over, flipping that record over. That's what we used to do back in the day, young people, is we used to just sit in our rooms and listen to our record players over and over again. Yeah. Records yeah. on a record player. Yeah, that Matt, what did you think of this? Again, it was very surprising for me. I thought, you know, because we're called Thrash and Treasure, I was expecting like some really heavy, you know, sort of guitars and stuff. And it was much more gentle in terms of musicality, like in terms of, you know, because we had listened to um, Kings of Metal by Man of War last week, and which was very guitar heavy and very like, you know, very, um, it's a later era. So I was a bit surprised by this. And I, yeah, I agree with Martin. Like it was this real um, sort of nostalgia trip and, um, and yeah, and very sort of dreamy in an interesting way. And, um, you know, and there's like that soaring vocals at the one point, there's this sort of, you know, almost operatic sort of section. I was like, oh, this is not at all what I expected. Yeah. So, I mean, I was very surprised by it. But again, like I said, you know, I'm always looking for the, the hit singles and uh, I didn't find a hit single on this one. So, well, yeah, there wasn't really. Mm. Am I going insane in parentheses radio? I think that's to hint that that's the one that's for the radio. Uh, that I think charted, but not very high. If I remember correctly, mm. it's always good to look at a band's journey as well, though. Um, you know, I think yeah. there's sixth album or something. And, you know, there's so many rumors about the recording and the relationship with the manager and the lawyers in the room. And there's also a rumor that Led Zeppelin popped in and jammed with them, but it might have been the album before this. Like there's all this sort of mythology around yeah. um, around this time um, in recording and what it was. And even like, I love the, the album covers like hilarious and the story behind the album cover, I guess it was the drummers of drum tech or whatever was like, oh, I'm a graphic designer. And, you know, yeah. so it's just this experimentation that is happening there is really exciting. So it's a really fun album in, in terms of that is, is it defies expectations. Yeah, because it looks like the the saboteur was Callie all along. So we're going to go to an ad break and Jack Corner. <laughs> G'day listeners, Aaron here. We thought we'd better send a spy to Broadway to check out the shows for us. So here for today's review is our Broadway spy, Spencer. This week we're talking about Parade. Parade is a 1998 musical written by Jason Robert Brown and Alfred Urey and co-conceived by Harold Prince. This show is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I saw it at City Center. I had never heard anything about it or knew anything about it. And this show is incredibly moving with a cast consisting of Michaela Diamond and Ben Platt as the Franks and countless others including off-Broadway favorite Eddie Cooper and personal favorite of mine, Sean Allen Krill, in other roles in the production. It is just a beautiful production with a wonderful score with these beautiful orchestrations with this large orchestra. It's a very minimalist production with direction by Michael Arden. It's just one of the most amazing things I've ever seen on a stage. Now, is this show for tourists or purists? This show is a show for purists. I don't think it's necessarily a show that tourists should go see, but it is an important show. It's a special show. There were neo-Nazis protesting outside the theater on the first preview. That's when you know that the show that you're creating is something that's needed in this world. Go see Parade until August 6th at the Bernard B. Jacobs Theater. We're back with Fresh and Treasure. I'm Aaron. That's Quizmaster Matt. And we're joined by the magnificent Martin Cruz. Now, you've just done 
Phantom of the Opera on Sydney Harbour, I believe. Yes. Did my ticket get lost in the mail? Must have. Bloody hell. Unless it got washed away. <laughs> Lots of rain, I hear. Yeah, yeah. When they were building the set, they had to dredge 16 tonnes of mud out of the site. Oh, shit. Because, of course, it's uh, the location is Mrs Macquarie's chair, which is an embankment, basically, that looks across to the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. And uh, all of this mud just ran down the hill and sort of gathered against the harbour wall there. And so quite a while they're trying to build this scaffolding in this enormous staircase, they're actually having to bring the bulldozers in and get all this mud out of the place. I see, that's when you want to do hair in the park. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that was... <laughs> When you were talking about that, it was one of my thoughts was, what are you doing in the inclement weather? So I saw videos, um, you know, on the social medias of people like holding onto set pieces and just the pouring rain. Yeah. <laughs> was that an often sort of thing? That Thankfully, no. The first two previews were fairly torrential. When I say the first two, the only two previews were torrential. And then by some miracle, the opening night, I couldn't have been more divine. The clouds parted and temperate conditions until about a half an hour after the show finished when uh, Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber was spinning the discs in the after party and got absolutely drenched. The skies opened up then. That's something I never thought I'd hear. Andrew Lloyd Webber was spinning the discs in the after party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's his new thing. He's a DJ now. He did that when Phantom reopened on Broadway. Yeah. Afterwards, they had a street party. That's right. There's video of that online. Yeah. Yeah. The footage that you've probably seen was really the first performance where it was torrential like that Mm. and that footage was taken about a minute and a half before we stopped the show and the reason we stopped it was because the orchestra pit flooded the only reason that the onstage action stops is lightning wow it's you know 10 minutes before the end of the show and a lot of us were actually out in that up on the top of the staircase it's just a bizarre experience and kudos to Josh Robson and Georgina Hobson for how they just carried on singing I mean you've got a mouth full of water <laughs> Georgina was saying that the, the water was hitting the table with such force that it was then bouncing up into her eyes and it's certainly this stage of my career sort of 30 odd years into my career to have a first time experience of something it's quite unique and I have to say with that production there were more than one first time experiences it was just <laughs> incredible there's a theater in the states and I, I forget which one it is I don't think it's Aero Lyceum but it's one of these outdoor theaters and it's near a flight path and there's actually like green light yellow light red light and so the warning light will come on and then there'll be a red light and the orchestra will stop and these actors will stop and they're in freeze then the plane will go over and then it will wow. go back to green light and they'll continue the show wow they do musicals like this i forget where it is anyway we'll have to look that up yeah i need to know that one of our other hosts jonathan mr j wags will be coming up in an outdoor summer stock repertory three productions and he'll be playing willy wonka in challenge the chocolate factory i think i'm allowed to announce that i think i don't know if i've broken the embargo then whoops Daisies, i didn't mean to do that Anyways, we're, we're going to move on to the musical now because we'll, we'll continue on with Andrew Lloyd Webber. As we say, he's had a bit of a rough week. So us at Thrush and Treasure, we send our love to Andrew Lloyd Webber and his family and also to David Zippel, obviously friend of the show, who has been on this show twice. What the fuck is going on in my life? I have no idea. <laughs> but anyways, now before we get on to that, I would like both of you gentlemen to join me in a campaign to Disney. Do you agree it is about time that David Zippel was made a Disney legend? 
Absolutely. Mm. Yes. Yes. He wrote Reflection, people. Yes. Hercules. Hercules, bless my soul. But Reflection has been done on every single idol, X Factor, The Voice, around the world. That Goodness gracious me, <laughs> he deserves it for that one song. It has inspired how many little girls are there. No disrespect to Matthew Wilder. Oh, was it? I didn't mean to break his stride. Ha <laughs> ha. I will punish myself later with 50 Hail Marys. Uh, Matt, do you agree? It is about time. It's about time, definitely. Yes. I mean, Hercules, come on. You can't say, bless my soul without everybody yelling the response. Hashtag badass Zipperella. <laughs> anyway, so yes, we're going to move on to the musical, The Woman in White. Now, I didn't know it and neither did Matt. So you have reviewed it this week. And obviously, I would be absolutely biased. Matt, you have never interviewed David. So. Well, no, I have not. But uh, but I do have a long history of loving Andrew Lloyd Webber's music from that Phantom album that I used to play really, really lab when I was, I don't know, about a 10-year-old, my sister would be so mad because there's all these screams like, oh, you know, <laughs> she's like, what is going on? Turn down the record player. So, I mean, I honestly like this, I love this album. I love this cast recording. It's like from the very beginning of that prologue, it just sets the scene. Like, I guess I'm a bit of a fan of uh, sort of gothic sort of horror as well. And I just think the pacing of this is so, so exciting because it really just holds tension. I was so spooky. The opening number fulfills the brief you know what I mean? if it's going to be a creepy show you can't get more creepy than the opening number and the storytelling in it and you know the sort of sparseness of the music and all the hello hello just really awesome and again you know we I, I always talk about this you know my friends about Lloyd Webber and so there's this one sort of motif that goes on and on and on in all the shows and some of them sound you know like others and so I, I mean there's certainly a feeling of cats in Phantom and even Love Never Dies I mean even right from the very beginning in um the prologue but that's assuming that you know all of his work as well. You know what I mean? So, um, and I think maybe people do much more than they realize. And then, of course, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but the ghost in the opening, I was like, oh my gosh, it sounds just like Sharon Millichip, which I thought was <laughs> just interesting. And we'll talk about, you know, the Australians that have been associated with this production, um, you know, towards the end of the review. Yeah. So, I mean, now, you know, we're into perspective. We're still holding the tension. She looked so much like you, you know, all these sort of, um, it's not, it, it, well, it's a ghost story. It's based on a novella so it's not really like a children's story but I mean if they're giving all these really clear story points along the way but also just really holding the tension and then I mean we got to trying not to notice and it's sort of the all I ask of you of the show and so I was like swept up in the romance again and then they hit us with I believe my heart and that is a banger I love that song I mean just when you thought it couldn't get any better we come in with that song um, which is just amazing because again like I hadn't like maybe it was in the back of my mind and I knew this um, that all oh, for Laura you know that sort of theme um, and then I was like oh there's this song yes I love this song and of course then we get the townspeople coming in you know to, to shift the mood which again like was, when I'm talking about the pacing like you know it's this broody you know there's some flirting there's some humor there's some unrequited love and then we get those townspeople to just keep coming in and keeping the show moving along we get to gifts for living well and okay and now you know more questions and accusations are sort of being laid into this now. So in terms of the storytelling, like we're just, it's we're getting layered with more information as we go along. And then of course, here we come to All for Laura, which is, you know, another banger. You know, I just love this song. It's so haunting. There's something to say about a repetitive me melody. And I mean, I think Andrew Lloyd Webber does that really well. Yeah, I mean, I was so into that. And then we get to this beautiful ghost and I was like, oh my goodness, this sounds like that Taylor Swift song from Cats. You know what I mean? Like, like again, like if you love Andrew Lloyd Webber, you 
you're going to love this album. Now we're into act two. And of course, the baddies. I can't remember anybody's name or the baddies. I just remember those, uh, you know, the Count Fosco. Percival Glide. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And they come back in and there's more rumors and accusations. You know, now we're starting to find out who the villains are. Again, it's really well painted when someone becomes a villain. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you might not have realized um, what's going on. But then it's in that typical gothic sort of way. You just have no, there's no doubt about who our villains are. And of course, tragedy strikes. And then we get back to the chorus with Lost Souls. We're into the seduction. You know, there's more of this mystery happening here. And this brought me to Mystery of Edwin Drood. And then I was like, oh, well, I guess it is sort of based on The Signalman, which is a Dickens short story as well. I mean, it's partially based on a lot of things. So I was very excited about that. And then, of course, we get to the asylum. And the asylum, and this is where I can't talk much more about it because I don't want to ruin um, story points for people. But the plot twists ensue. Let's just put it that way. Let's just put it that way. We learn a lot um, by this point and basically it's just a rollicking ghost story I, like the rest of it you, you just have to hear it to believe it it's a pretty long album but again it's one of those that like I would have totally just been sitting in my bedroom just like sitting there in quiet listening to every single detail and really being caught up in the story I mean I absolutely loved it I'm so excited by it it reminded me of some of my favorite things I guess I really love gothic things so I mean you know even there's like it has a sort of secret garden sort of feel to it. I mean, I was thinking of passion, uh, sometimes passion at times. Yeah, so I'm very biased. It is my sort of musical, and I am giving it four out of five. Oh, wow. Awesome. Well, plot twist and Hathaway did the workshop. What? Yeah. Of all the people, that's so random. Anyway, sorry. I was like, surely, surely it must be another Anne Hathaway, not that famous actor, but no, it was her. Seems like it was. No, it wasn't Shakespeare's wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, you're right. This is very haunting. It's not just a sort of ghost story. It's the novel was sort of the first mystery slash detective novel that really sort of set the standard for the sort of clues that you'll get the story to all the narrative plot points that was told from different points of view as well. Mm. And I think that was one of the first times that was done. Especially in a mystery novel So not having read the novel I can't tell you if then that's reflected In the musical Maybe Martin you may know So on the first day of rehearsal Trevor Nunn gave us a sort of an introductory lecture And he talked all about How down through the ages The popular voices of the day Were drawn to the popular medium Which is why Shakespeare was a playwright Because the playhouse was where Everybody went not only for entertainment But to get current affairs and find out what was going on and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, for a sort of period of a hundred years or so after Shakespeare, there weren't any really significant playwrights because things moved into the novel. It was written as a serial, which appeared in Charles Dickens' magazine, which was called All Year Round, I think. And I believe it was a weekly. And the first instalment of The Woman in White appeared in the same issue as the last instalment of Tale of Two Cities. And The Woman in White was by far the most successful story that had been published, more successful than anything that Dickens had written. And it was so embraced by the masses that on the day the final instalment came out in the magazine, the British Parliament agreed not to sit because they knew that no one would turn up because everybody wanted to find out what happened with Laura and Walter and, and everyone. Wow. And, yeah, Wilkie Collins was... Far more successful in that regard than Charles Dickens. Um, unfortunately, the opium got the better of him eventually. He only wrote one 
other novel of significance, The Moonstone, I think it was called. And then he kind of succumbed to the drugs. And so the way that the novel is set out, it begins with an account in the first person written by Walter Hartwright, the school teacher, who talks about in the first person how he got this job to be the tutor for these girls at Limeridge House in the English countryside. And the night before he departed, he bumped into this woman in white on the high road. And then he goes to Limeridge, meets all of the people, talks all about Fosco, Percival Glide, and then he is banished at the end of the first section of the book. And then the middle of the book is made up of accounts by the housekeeper who have all done this at Walter's request because he's put, what has he says in the beginning, I've put this together as a almost a legal document to prove our argument kind of thing to recount the events that happened. And then Marion, she gives an account and blah, blah, blah. This is where it differs with the show in a way. The whole thing is then bookended by Walter. Marion goes looking for Walter and finds him and then he takes up the narrative again through to the end. And in the show... Marion still goes to look for Walter and finds Walter, but then she kind of is the driving force in terms of getting revenge. Drives the story, yeah. Yeah, so very much, as you said, the the Charles Dickens short story, The Signalman, is where the, you know, that bit at the beginning, the hello, hello there. Yeah, yeah. That sort of Benjamin Britten type scene, Andrew used again to book it because it finishes at the train station as well. You know, the, the show was all done with graphics. Yeah, yeah, the set design was quite unique for the time. Yeah, the set was just blank and so everything was projected and so at the climax of the pursuit of the baddies there's this train tunnel and the image would sort of shift to the side and the train would sort of come diagonally across the stage and it was this sort of big climactic moment of the show and then all of a sudden Andrew Lloyd Webber getting cold feet as we were approaching opening suddenly went I have a train in Starlight Express I have a train in Whistle Down the Wind they're going to accuse me of always having trains and so he said I want to cut the train and we had this week where Trevor said we just have to understand you know what it's like in the creative process and blah 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 he said we will have a train (laughs) we just have to bide our time and, and sure enough, the train came back in. It was quite spectacular, the effect. It sounds so exciting. And, um, you know, again, because for that time, yeah. nothing had been done like it before. And it would have just added that real spookiness as well. You know what I mean? That sort of, yes. was it sort of a curved sort of projection surface? or? Yeah, so we had, so essentially, if you think of the stage being like a half cylinder, we had a revolve and then a back wall that went sort of around the back half of the stage. And within that wall, there was a section that came out and would come onto the revolve and could turn around and then also for the beginning of the show the two side walls could come completely to the front so that when you came into the theatre you were looking at sort of the front of the cylinder with I can't remember what was projected on it and then those two walls opened up at the beginning to find Walter, me, standing alone on a railway track and then so the very different positions that this smaller screen could go into it would sort of go halfway around and it would have a hedge projected on it so we'd be in the gardens but it also had a door in the middle of it It was very versatile unfortunately quite prone to breaking down Ah. we had a few contingency options for if the screen didn't work but then if the revolve didn't work and then if nothing worked you know the projections they still worked to a degree but not you didn't get the full effect no one 
had ever seen anything like it before. And in fact, on the first day of rehearsal, which is the scene, it's Walter on his own meeting the signal. And Trevor, would, he kept saying, because we hadn't had, he hadn't shown us the model yet because the designer was in New York or something. So he was coming on day two or three of rehearsal. And so he kept saying, if we were making the movie of this show, how would you <laughs> scramble down the embankment? And I'd be thinking, yeah, but we're not making the movie. <laughs> yeah, but if we were, what would you do? And then finally, you know, a day or two in and he showed us the model and it all became clear that we were sort of making the movie in a way. You've just reminded me of Diana from A Chorus Line, where she feels nothing while everyone's going down the hill and they feel yeah, the cold and right. I feel the snow and she feels nothing. Yeah. At this point where you were like, wait a minute, what have I got myself into? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. What is this pantomime I'm in? Yeah, with this dissonant music. Also, Lammas Tide is the sort of the start of the harvest. That's right. Lammas is on August 1st. It's a, it's a Christian or Catholic or whichever, one of these religious uh, events, if you will. Um, yeah, so Lammas is on August 1st, but Lammas Tide is where they plant the harvest for the wheat to then make the Lammas bread. But every time that song came on, I just wanted to dance naked and sacrifice a goat. But I never would because I wouldn't hurt a poor goat. So I just dance naked. Anyways, let's move on very, very quickly. So when I first listened to this show and I'd heard this when it first came out, really, and I sort of thought I had the same expectations. This is totally on me. I'm going to go on a little bit of rant here. I apologize in advance, Martin. The media, audiences, podcasters, even performers, actors, when someone does something and does something really really well we expect them to replicate it and replicate it again and replicate it again now andrew lloyd webber had these massive massive hits so many of them in a row and then we got to a point in the 90s where we expected his next show to sound like his last show or his most popular show and when it came to this coming out i think where it suffered was our fault for having that expectation that oh Andrew Lloyd Webber's doing another gothic horror musical it's gonna be another phantom and so we went in expecting that that onus is on us we can't do that to artists anymore people we have to let them follow their instincts if Andrew's sitting there saying well they're gonna accuse me of having another train in it he's not following his instincts there but he's thinking about those reactions he's thinking about those expectations from us that's not fair on any artist we've gotta stop that shit so that's sort of one thing i was thinking about a lot so and i sort of come to that conclusion that that's our fault just because you know wes craven does another horror movie we can't expect it to be a nightmare before christmas again because remember it comes out then with the people under the stairs and it is just as brilliant as nightmare before christmas nightmare before christmas nightmare on elm street nightmare before christmas i was like wait a minute completely wrong filmmaker Goodness gracious me, there's an, another filmmaker who has his style. We're just going to let you keep going, keep going, keep yeah. going, make this mistake <laughs> over and then tell you at the end. Tim Burton's a great example there because he keeps trying to live up to those expectations that we have set onto him. It's when he fucks off our expectations that he keeps succeeding. Who was I talking about? Wes Craven, yet come out with The People Under the Stairs and then a couple of years later, New Nightmare, brilliant. Scream, brilliant. Because he didn't mm. follow our expectations. He just went with what he wanted to make there and of course obviously there's the whole meta thing that was going on there so i think you were sort of sticking it to our expectations a little bit there great do that artist more stick it to our expectations because then you're going to flourish 
And that's what happened for the first half or the first quarter or whatever, however long of Andrew Lloyd Webber's career, that those expectations he bobbed off. And he gave us Evita. He gave us Phantom. He gave us Cats. Even Starlight Express, you can laugh at all you like, people at home. Ed has had this massive life around the world in Germany. And just because it's not America or London, who cares? That's a 30-year running show or something, or however long it's been running. That is a success, however you want to paint it. So anyway, sorry, I did warn you guys at the start of that. You could have told me to shut up at any moment. So I'm sorry, like, you know, no, no, it's clock sticking. No, I'm, I'm all for that. But Martin, there was sort of like 2.0 version of the show as well, wasn't there, during the run? Yeah. Well, during the time that I was in. So I, I originated it and did 12 months from start of rehearsal. And then another Australian, Damien humbly took over from me and towards the end of my tenure we did some work with Andrew to fine tune a couple of things that changed I believe my heart slightly I can't remember the specifics of that but essentially it was the same show with just a couple of tweaks because I think the music from the show is beautiful. Yes, I agree. I believe my heart and Walter's 11 o'clock number, Evermore Without You. And this is only my personal opinion. And it's only because I've been doing a lot of writing in the last sort of decade and studying story structure and, and that sort of thing. I think that as soon as you mess with the symmetry of a story, it, you know, the hero's journey type nature of, a, of an arch plot story with a protagonist, you're asking for trouble because you're kind of messing with the audience's subconscious expectations. As I said, the show follows the novel till the point that Marion finds Walter again, and then you, you miss out on that bookend. Mm. You know, I think because it had all the hallmarks, it was, uh, you know, a new Android Webber show with a great score, David Zippel writing the lyrics, directed by Trevor Nunn at the Palace Theatre. It was the first show in after Les Mis. Andrew finally got his theatre back after 15 years or whatever it was. And that was the other thing about the cast recording is that it's live, which he'd long had this dream of is that, that basically he's got a recording studio on about the fourth floor of the Palace Theatre. And so the sound desk just went straight up to the recording studio and they recorded the album live. Wow. Yeah. Pretty well all of my stuff is live. Michael Crawford then went in and laid down his tracks again. Because he's Michael Crawford, that's why. Yes, that's right, yeah. But that's why you hear a lot of scuffling and, and like when we have the fight, there's lots of... <laughs> I love that, though. Yes, I wondered about that. And there was one moment where and there were so many people talking I actually pictured you guys in the studio with your books in front of you with all these different noises and onomatopoeia written on the thing I can't remember what moment it was but there was sort of just cries out and stuff like that it was very quick it, yeah. it wasn't a long passage my mind wanders stupidly well the um, way they actually pitched it to us was they said we're going to market the album as if you were here on opening night this is what you would have heard and so we, we went okay fair enough let's do that but then, of course, Michael went, well, I want to re-record all of my stuff. And I think Maria Friedman did a little bit. But for the majority of it, like 90% of the album is literally was recorded over, I think, four performances. And so it's a, a combination of the best of those four. I love that. I didn't know that. And, but but I mean, you know, like the visceral, the screaming, um, you know, when Marion hears about her sister and everything, like I was like, it was so live. It was very live. Yeah, now that yeah. I know that, I'm like, oh. 
oh, that makes so much sense. See why I'm picturing them stand there in their, you know, tracky dacks and they're just a hoodie or whatever <laughs> yeah. with their books in front of them and it cries out and just making random noises. Because the other thing, of course, is it's a performance for a 1500-seat theatre. Yeah. Not for a microphone. And that was our sort of concern at the time. Is it going to be too big, you know? But they were like, no, no, well, this is what how we're marketing it. But then, of course, they didn't in the end. To be fair, though, I have 15,000 thoughts in my head at any given moment <laughs> so we're fine on that anyways we're gonna move it on we are running way way over time because it looks like the woman in white has spilt red wine on her skirt so we're gonna to go to an outbreak dumbest most unrelated segue I g'day listeners aaron here while you're topping up your coffees did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time, go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, You'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. After barely three hours of light sleep, Toniston Turnbull slowly opens his eyes, his body feeling heavier than it ever has before. Not from extra weight, from tiredness and stress. Polly sighs in the shadows behind him, the flame of the nearest barbed wire tiki torch tower having died down, but not out, while Toniston napped. Are you awake? Toniston whispers. Oh, how can I sleep in this place? Polly moans, turning onto her side and facing Toniston, who stays on his back, imagining obscure animal-esque shapes in the rusted tin roof above them, shadows faintly formed by the nearest dying torches. We need to work out a way to get out of here, Toniston states the obvious. He whispers, despite the fact the nearest shacks to their own are several metres away, and the occupants presumably asleep, as most prisoners seem to be. How? There's no fence to squeeze through, or even climb, Polly replies, sitting up in bed and then stretching out her sore arms. The hairs stand on end from the slight chill in the air. I don't know, but I think the whole fighting thing is a distraction. You mean, to distract the other prisoners when new ones arrive? No, I, I think that was just bad timing. Didn't you notice? Toniston goes on to explain his theory. That fight happened. Everybody gathered around. I didn't see one person who wasn't watching. And then when I vomited, the only gate in this place closed shut. What are you trying to say? I think something happened when everyone's back was turned. Like what? Whispers Polly, her voice breaking up in fear. I don't know. That's what we've got to find out. Toniston's brain starts working overtime. But it's strange that nobody seems to want to leave. They seem almost happy. Definitely content. So, when's the next one of those stupid beatdowns? Toniston can't help but think Polly looks tough, almost evil in the shadows as she asks, I don't know, Toniston begins. But both teenagers are distracted by a crumbling noise in the distance. Hopping out of bed, Toniston joins Polly on her own, equally uncomfortable one. Spotting a large, white package hovering close to the cave ceiling, behind it a shadowy figure. The package is lowered down, causing the teenagers themselves to lower as well, hoping not to be spotted by whom, or what, may be operating this obscure crane. 
Over a long, slow descent, the package is dropped to the ground. Polly keeps her eyes on it, but Toniston looks up immediately, spotting a large black shadow scurry away to God only knows where. Come, he whispers, as he quietly hops off her bed, slipping into his docks with bare feet. Polly follows his lead. Careful to keep watch on all directions, the teenagers swiftly sneak over to the white package, their hearts beating an almost tribal jam in perfect harmony, and stopping in their tracks as the sudden realisation of what lies before them sinks in. A woman, seemingly in her early twenties, wrapped up in bandages from the neck down. No, not bandages. Is that spiderweb? Polly asks, completely mortified at the prospect. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! Anyways, we're back with Fresh and Torture. I'm Aaron, that's Matt, and we are joined by the wonderful Martin Cruz. Now, we had a discussion last week about the sound, quote-unquote, sound of Australian musicals. We need to kind of find an identifiable sound with our musicals to stand out from Broadway, from West End, which you can sort of pick the vibe or the sound that you get from them. Could you pick an identifiable sound that you go, that's an Australian musical right away? Like if Hello Dolly comes on, you know right away that's a Broadway musical because mm-hmm. it's just got that vibe to it. Or The Woman in White, you know that's a West End musical because it's very sweeping. I mean, I think that there's no fast track for that. It requires time. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing is that we don't have these original Australian musicals that are finding the subsidy and getting on. I just saw The Lovers at uh, the Opera House, which I thought was fabulous. And um, Fangirls as well. You know, again, these are original Australian musicals, which are just excellent. We've got some great stuff out there. We really do. And stuff that has been popular for a long time that some people may not realise it is Australian, like Paris, musical Paris. That's got an audience around the world, things like that. I don't know personally, because I haven't really listened to it. If I was to listen to it, would I know straight away that's an Australian musical? Apart from our industry does, like we said last week, put ourselves second to international and I think that's a bit of a problem because that's not allowing our artists to flourish if all our big musicals are based on movies there are so many original ideas out there give us a Jeffrey Edelston musical Jeffrey Edelston can you not imagine that (laughs) holy shit yes I can actually huge chandelier and a grand piano in his in his thing his big showman he's a doctor and then he's got the crime stuff going on he's got his big boobied wives (laughs) it's a great idea though and you could almost hear what the music would be as well (laughs) make it an Australian sound done there we go. Give me my check right now, please, producers. Yeah, so there's going to be an ongoing discussion on this show. It will take time, you're right. I think enough time has passed. But we had all the, um, is it Terry Clark and, and Nick Enright? Yes, the Venetian Twins. The Venetian Twins. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, in Summer Rain, there was like a string of them at that time. And then, I mean, I remember seeing uh, The Republic of Myopia, which uh, Phil Scott wrote the music for, that Tams and Carol was in. And again, thinking that that was really fun and sort of had a quite unique sound as well, but there wasn't really a follow-up to that. So yeah, it's interesting and it does take time. And of course, like we've got Eddie Perfect and we've got Tim Minchin and, you know, some who are writing for an overseas audience, but sort of by necessity because there just hasn't been a lot of support for their work. 
work, you know, from like on a government level. Yeah. And so we just need to just keep listening. I mean, Eddie Perfect, like, oh, what a composer, <laughs> what a performer. Yeah. You know, I remember like I had his CD inside Ed's head, which is something that I did, I think, back in his Wapa, Wapa days. I mean, and I, yeah, it's just a unique sound. So I hope that we keep hearing more and more and more. You mentioned the Venetian Twins, Martin. That's one musical that I would point out and go, that's an Australian musical. And I saw it once. It's got that sort of the folk songs that, you know, there's a track going back to, you know, an old fashioned track, yeah, you know, yeah. all that sort of larrikin sort of bushy sort of music. Well, maybe this isn't a good idea then. Uh, well, but we're trying to move away from that. You know what I mean? We're trying to say we're not just that. Yeah, that's the thing is that we need the new generation to be composing in a new voice. You know, when uh, Man from Snow River was all uh, Lee Kernigan music. Mm. But that's funnily enough, even though it's Australian, it's very much got that American brand of country and Western. But then we sang with Australian accents. And I think, you know, moving away from Banjo Patterson, Henry Lawson, kind of dog on the tucker box, colloquial Australians, and getting into this sort of new era, like like murials, you know, the, the stuff that um, Kate Miller-Heike wrote for that, you know, that's... That's fresh, new Australian sound there. Mm. And I think that's the beginning of, of what we might soon be identifying as an Australian sound in musical theatre. Let's start the conversation and keep it going. Anyways, next up, standing ovations. What has been your experience, especially doing Australia and London? Because neither are really known. F- well, London nowadays is known for standing ovations, but never used to be. Australians used to be as well cold, but now they're giving it to anything. What's been your experience with them over the years? Well, I've certainly experienced them. Yeah. Did you always agree with them? No. Well, funnily enough, <laughs> the first thing that's come into my head is when I was doing Les Miserables in the West End. So you are Marius? I was Marius, yeah. And I'd done the international tour the year prior, which was an amazing, it was an incredible experience. And then I didn't want to do Les Mis again because I didn't want to tarnish the experience. But I was offered Marius in the West End and I'd just arrived in London, so I would have been mad to say no. Mm-hmm. But particularly on the towards the end of the week, Friday, Saturday night, we'd get a standing ovation Saturday night and I, I'd vehemently disagree. <laughs> I love that. Sit down, sit down. The, yes, almost. Almost. I, I mean, like, you know, we don't deserve that tonight. And of course, you can't second guess what the audience has experienced and neither can you deny them. You know, someone in that audience may have had their life changed that night and you absolutely have to go, well, thank the gods of the theatre. But I would be like, really? A lot of the cast were phoning it in that night and the orchestra <laughs> were phoning it in. We really don't deserve it. I'm a firm believer, you know when you've done well. You know when you've nailed it. Yes. And you know when you've nearly quite got there. When we did Lemmy's in Cape Town, someone wrote a card or something that said 74 performances, 74 standing ovations. And they were spontaneous, immediate, the entire audience. Boom. The energy. That's the best feeling when when you're in an audience or when you're on the stage and you just, that bounce up at the end where no one can just control themselves. It's so exciting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's not a regimental, yeah. oh, this is where we stand up now because everyone else is uh, and clap really. Yeah. No, it's electricity. And I can't see anymore. Yes, that's it. Yeah. That's all it is. 
is. Yeah. That's all it is. It's friends of the cast or fan boys or girls that have been there 20 times already. And they're standing up so that the people behind them can't see. And it's a domino effect. Yes. And so the people up in the balconies yes. don't realize that's what's happening. And they just see people standing up and they look at each other and like, oh, do we? I guess we should. Yeah, all right. And we stand up now. And then that cast walks off going, wow, we got a standing ovation tonight. I've got a tweet about that now. And then there's some asshole named me sitting there at home going, <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. No, you earn that shit and you know when you earn that shit. Yeah. I'm such a curmudgeon. Yeah. Patty Newton used to come to see the producers to see Bert and she used to jump up like, you know, at every standing ovation. Then people would be like, oh, it's Patty Newton. We'd never stand up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's not what happened, but that's what I imagined happened. But good on you, Patty, supporting us every night. We didn't get a lot of standing ovations yeah. with that show, sadly. It wasn't a big hit the first time that it came through Australia. Well, the only time. The only time, yeah. Yeah. It's done well for production company and then for Altitude Theatre up in Brisbane um, when we did it. But yeah, no, the original cast, it was a very well received. We won Help Men's and then it was sort of like the audience sort of went, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, Damn. I remember. I don't know why. Look at Spam a lot. Yeah, that just died in horrible death in front of us all. Yeah, it was like the night that has his arms and legs cut off and I'm not dead yet. But it wasn't even that because the show literally just rolled over and died. It did die. It did not fight it at all, and that was a shame. But anyways, now what's a part that you have finished up, but feeling that you left something out at the end of the day, like you could have, you could take that part on again just to reach that. That pinnacle or that moment that you wanted to. I did pal Joey at the Chichester Festival Theatre. Oh, my dad's from there. Oh. Not from the theatre. My dad's from Chichester. Uh, from Chichester. I think Beautiful part of the world. The Fishburn. Is that near there? Yes. Anyway, sorry. Got excited. We And we had two goes at it because we there were two theatres there and we opened the season in the Minerva Theatre with a 300 seat sort of studio and sold out. And so they asked us back at the end of in the main house. And I felt like by the end of the main season, I was just starting to come to grips with who Joey actually Because he's a con man. And you don't get any help in the script in terms of, you know, in brackets, saying this but meaning something else kind of thing. Contextual, underlying, subtext. Yes, and it's all written in colloquial language, so you have to work out what he's actually saying. So that's one role that I certainly went, I'd love to have another go at that because I'd probably do things a little bit. um, Those days are long gone, of course, but... um, but yeah, that's one that came to mind straight away. Antonio Banderas, at 62 years old, just played Bobby in Company. And it's his 35th birthday in that. So this whole age thing clearly does not matter anymore. If That's mm-hmm. literally almost half his age. Not that there's nothing wrong with it. That's a, I'm not going into a theatre to see someone's age or someone's real life. I'm literally seeing a lit up box. Give me the fantasy. That's what I'm yes. looking I, That's That's why like, I don't watch Grease and go, oh, they're all 35-year-olds. And I'm living in a fantasy. Anyways, now if 10-year-old Martin popped up to say hi, what advice would he have for you? Or what reminder or what would he tell you off about? What advice would he have for me? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, not the other way around. Yeah. So I moved to Australia when I was 10 from London. And only in retrospect did I realise not what a harrowing experience, but how challenging it was for me. So from my 10-year-old, 
I guess, so you could say my 10-year-old self prior to moving to Australia, I might say be proud of your Englishness mm -hmm. because I lost my accent within three months and I did anything I could to not stand out, you know, because I talked like that when I arrived. I was all, I was a little London. You little half a dodger. Sorry, that's so racist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm half British. I am half, my dad was born in England, remember, Chichester, right. Fishbone. Anyway, sorry. I lost my accent, yeah. After 23 years. Yeah. I was born in Australia and live in Australia. As I told Andrew Lipper, I'm the only one here born incontinent. <laughs> That's what that means, right? Took, took me a while for that one. Yeah, I did. Slow burn, <laughs> slow burn. Anyway, sorry. So mine would be telling me to eat your fucking vegetables for crying out loud, you idiot. What would yours be, Matt? Get swole, bro. Get swole. <laughs> yes, eat your vegetables. Get swole. I was a very lean kid. I was very athletic, but very lean. And then, um, yeah, and now I sort of, I wonder what would have happened if I had, um, you know, got swole. <laughs> That's a stupid, stupid answer. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, no, I, I wish I'd eaten properly and not been a skinny shit my whole life. Now, Martin, can you impersonate any other celebrities? Ooh. I used to do Anthony Warlow when I was an usher on the original production of Phantom of the Opera. Obviously, I can't quite get his singing voice, but uh, uh, I'll give you a little rendition now of what I used to do, uh, which is this idiosyncratic part of his performance. He would go, That fate which condemns me to wallow in blood has also denied me the joys of the flesh. <laughs> flesh. Have you done that in front of him? No. No? Oh, I think Warlow would think that's funny. Well, I hope he hears this episode, and I yeah. highly doubt he's going to hear this episode, but <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah, I I'm very impressed. I love that. Yeah, me too. Anyways, Resident Evil, have you since attempted to play the game, or are you still wussing out? No, I did. I played the game finally when I was in LA. It came out a remastered version on the GameCube and I'd gone over for pilot season and then there was this massive hiatus where policies had been so intense that the whole industry was kind of reeling for about a month or two after it ended. And I spent a lot of that time playing Resident Evil on the GameCube and was terrified but absolutely blown away by it and by the genius of it and how atmospheric and, and the paradox of... Because I've, I've done all the Tomb Raiders and, and all of that sort of thing where, you know, you have a 360-degree view with a camera. And this the paradox of being a crack commando character and yet you're walking down a corridor and all of a sudden the camera moves to the other end of the corridor looking back at you which means the controls instantly reverse and you see that there's a zombie walking up behind you and you you're like running into walls and you know <laughs> shooting yourself in the foot I, I just I was absolutely blown away by the you know, having been through the process of the film, of uh, of the genius of, of uh, what they did with that game. Yeah, and you know they can't hurt you, right? Yes. They are just pixels. Yep. <laughs> yes. Okay, that's all right then, as long as we clear that up. But you can hurt yourself. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. You can hurt yourself tripping over furniture, bumping into walls, etc., yeah. etc. Et yes, cracking the shits and accidentally hitting yourself in the face with the controller because your legs and all that's gone up in the air. And yes. Screaming, bleeding from the vocal cords. Yeah. We have all done it gaming. Dangerous stuff. Yeah. Gaming is extreme sports, that's for sure. Uh, anyways, I actually, I've played one resident evil game which i played on the wii u when that was still operational but i remember it being 
set on a cruise ship, which was pretty much the only reason why I was playing it. And I remember there was one bit where there was a monster behind the thing and the way it was talking was just really creeping me out. I'm like, nah, man, I'm out. So I don't know which one that was. Yeah, that that's why I didn't want to play the first one is because you carry it with you through the day, you know, and you go, oh, maybe I need to look in that room behind the painting or something. You're thinking about it. And I was like, I don't want this in my in the back of my head horror movies i will deliberately watch by myself in the middle of the night oh me too then i'll go out and put the rubbish out now i watched nope the other night and there's a scene where the little aliens or i won't spoil it for anyone but it's dark and you can just barely see that there is someone there you know then gone and put the rubbish out and i swear to god there was someone standing on the street corner when i closed the lid and looked up again they were gone and i just piss bolted inside i'm like fuck no was it a woman in white yes could have been the woman in white no but that's the thing i'm not afraid of ghosts it's people it's human beings that scare me like we're the freaky ones anyways now speaking of resident evil and gaming if you could turn any musical into a video game which would you like to play? For some reason, I'm thinking of Joseph. Oh, okay. Yeah. And why? Like be out in the desert riding camels or something? I don't know. Yeah, because then the, the coat could have special powers that you can shoot rainbows at people. Yeah. Yeah. Could have a Super Mario Brothers sort of feel. Yeah. yeah. I immediately went to Phantom of the Opera. Remember that E.T. game on Atari, like, way back in the day? Yes, I've played it. Well, hang on. When I say I've played it, I've tried to play it on emulator. Yes. So th- so that would be, for me, Phantom would be sort of like, you know, like E.T. was back in the Atari days. <laughs> Phantom would totally work. Because there is a Wizard of Oz game, and I've played that, and there's a Grease game on the DS that's more like a dress your character up and it's like a quote-unquote sim without much involved. Now I would love to see Wicked because you could expand off that. You're playing as the Wicked Witch there. Yeah absolutely. But the the sick morbid side of me wants to play as Sweeney Todd. (laughs) That would be epic. Would that not be epic? And you've got to collect uh, bodies to make pies and therefore you've got to make enough money to keep your shop open. Yeah. So it's part simulator, part slasher game. Holy shit. I'm giving producers so many ideas today. Why aren't I rich? Why? Oh my goodness gracious me. That would be awesome. Would that not be awesome? I can fully see that. You could expand off that mythology from the Penny Dreadfuls, that world and have other characters. You Jack the Ripper come in. It could be Sweeney Todd versus Jack the Ripper. Things like that. And it's your job. You could play as Mrs. Lovett as well. Two player. Oh my God. Multiplayer. And you've got to try to catch Jack the Ripper and turn him into a ripping pie. Oh, yum. Anyways, <laughs> we're going to move on from that. Now, Matt, do you have any questions? Oh, oh come on. Show business. <laughs> you always do this to you me. Have you always to do this to me. Quicker than that. Okay, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> do you watch The Muppet Show? And if you do watch The Muppet Show, which character would you be, Martin Cruz? I'm moving more and more towards Stettler and Waldorf these days. Yes. Sorry, I totally relate. <laughs> Personality-wise, you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I think aren't we all, really? I was going to say put yourself as a main character, but I mean, I guess they are main characters. Yeah. I do identify very much with Kermit. Aww. Some, what the hell's going on kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Arms above your head waving wild. Uh, yeah, trying to sort of manage the, the madness. 
Yeah. During the introductions, Matt's seen me do it a couple of times. You notice my arms are waving all over the place. I am literally being a Muppet at that time <laughs> when I am doing it. That's who I am thinking of is Kermit the Frog. And he does that. The introduction, then he writes him, and he does that. Yeah. That's what I am oh. doing with the introductions. <laughs> Vocal impersonation, just there. I sort of can. Uh, you know the theme song to Punky Brewster? I like singing it as Kermit the Frog. Let's see if I can do it. Every time I turn around, I see the girl that turns my world around. <laughs> that's that's off the cuff, okay? That's just... That's excellent. Without practice. That's so good. That's excellent. Give me a fucking break. But I love Punky Brewster and I love Kermit the Frog, so why not join the two of them together? Totally. Inspired. No reason. This yeah. is why I need a boyfriend. Anyways, you have been an amazing guest. Thank you so much, Martin. It has been absolutely wonderful having you on the show. I'm when Resident Evil came out, and I'm, I'd seen hair already, obviously, and I saw your name in the credits. I'm like, holy shit! How does this guy from Hair at the production company end up in this fucking movie? So I had no connection to Resident Evil at all or anything like that. But I only watched it to watch your character get killed off. Sorry about that. Right at the last minute. Yeah, I was rooting for you, though. I was. Thank you. You were the Aussie. So now I was I was so wrapped about that because, I look, I've spoken about it on the show before. People like Jamie Blanks, who was this unknown director, went to Hollywood and made Urban Legend, and I still have the freaking one sheet. You know, people like that, Robert Lekedic, filmmakers, mm. actors. Back then, it was you had to get an invitation to go to Hollywood. Now you need two months on fucking Home and Away or 50,000 followers on Instagram, and you're going to Hollywood on your own volition. It never used to be like that. No. And so when someone from here broke in Hollywood, it was a big deal. It was a big deal for little kids like me. I remember watching LA Confidential. I was in yes. London. And that scene where Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce burst through the door where, you know, they both decide to work together. Yeah. And I was just beaming with pride. Yeah. Come on, Ozzy. <laughs> I, was, I just couldn't believe it. This movie with all these amazing people. And here were these two guys, these two Australians, like yeah. taking the reins. It was just because that's what it was like back then. It was it was much harder to make your mark. Yeah, that's it. You you had to literally get invited. It wasn't just you pack up and oh, I'm going to try to make it in Hollywood. No, that's for Americans to do. Yeah, that's for someone in bloody you know uh, Idaho to to move to LA to become a star. Yeah, it wasn't for us here. You know, and and then Muriel's wedding hit obviously, and Priscilla hit, yeah. and yeah. we had Nicole Kidman that was huge. That era is sort of made the world pay attention or made Hollywood pay attention to us. And then, well, Anthony LaPaglia actually Anthony LaPaglia. became American, like he changed his accent and everything. That's yep. what he had to do, or that's what he perceived he had to do to actually make it there, that mm. kind of disguise his Australianism. And play as one of them. That's it. And obviously, we, mm. we know what happened with Mel Gibson, but he was already one of them, well, <laughs> Americans. So, well, that's he kind fine. of was. Yeah. You can yeah. keep him. Uh, but <laughs> Nicole is ours because she's ours. Full stop. Yeah. Anyways, uh, firstly, before we let you go, where can people find you on the social media? Um, I'm at Martin Cruz on Instagram. I think I'm the same on Twitter. <laughs> Martin doesn't need social media. Just go to any theater and he will be starring <laughs> in the show. Not true, but thank you. <laughs> yes, and starring in Mamma Mia coming up, which is my favorite slut-shaming musical. <laughs> but anyways, that's it from us. And you can find Matt and his podcast at The Story Chunder and at Matt Young Actor on Twitter and Instagram. Find us at Thresh and Treasure or at Thresh and Treasure Podcast, or if you're stupid enough, then me at As Aware. 
don't know why you'd want to. Uh, anyways, buy the Toniston Tales, read the Toniston Tales. Let me know how shit they were because, you know, I wrote them. Please just buy them. It will help our show stay on air because it is very costly to run. But anyways, that's it from us. You take care and we shall see you next time. Uro. Thank you, guys. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Awesome. Have a, have a great time with my mum. No, I'm going to